Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue. We are here with Liz Garibay, a museum consultant with over 25 years of experience in the arts. She's held positions at the Field Museum, Museum of Science and Industry, and the Peabody Museum at Harvard. She has developed programs that increase attendance at museums, that very important and often forgotten component, the museum visitor. She developed and hosted the four-star History for Chicago Public Media, um, a history-focused radio show. And she has a particular interest in the brewing arts, having created a history pub crawl in Chicago. She has created a travel app, Chicago Taverns and Tales, and yet another app, Chicago LGBT, based on the Chicago History Museum's Out in Chicago exhibit. And she is the mastermind behind the exhibit Brewing Up Chicago at the Field Museum in Chicago and the founder of the Chicago Brewseum. Welcome, Liz. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Liz. Well, I I realize that now that things are kind of shut down, and so you can't really say, oh, attendance is great or anything like that at your exhibit. But how, how did you find attendance and the response to your exhibit? And then after you tell me that, I want you to sort of go into how you decided to do it and how you got interested in brewing. Sure. The exhibition Brewing Up Chicago, How Beer Transformed the City, focuses on 19th century Chicago and really kind of have, has three narratives. It's, it's about the growth of the city, the growth of the beer industry, and the growth of the immigrant community and how they all sort of come together. And attendance has been great. We certainly knew that people would be interested in an exhibit about beer because, I mean, let's be honest, anytime you have beer or alcohol, people certainly want to <laughs> to be a part of it uh, in some way, shape, or form. But we certainly uh, didn't realize the, I guess, how excited people were really going to, to be about this. And, and we certainly exceeded expectations in terms of attendance. The exhibit was slated to... Um, be open for about, I want to say, 14 months, which for a temporary exhibit at a major museum like the Field Museum is a long time. A lot of these temporary exhibits are up for like five months at most. So we had a, a pretty good go for 14 months and then it got extended again. So, you know, clearly clearly the, the length of the show and the extension certainly kind of for for the impact that the exhibition has had on the organization and, and certainly on the, on the city of Chicago. That's really exciting. But how did you get yeah. into brewing? Well, I like to drink beer. <laughs> that's um, that's probably like, the most actually, fundamental aspect of this, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I actually like to drink a lot of things. And I don't actually make beer. You know, I just, I study beer. Um, mm-hmm. The way I kind of describe my career and my work is that I look at history through the lens of alcohol. And I started doing that sort of work, I want to say in the late 90s, 
I, you know, I love going to taverns, to bars, being a regular at those places. Uh, I just really love that space of conversation in a community that happens. And over time, I realized that, you know, people had been sitting in those, in those bar stools uh, way before myself. And the stories that they were sharing were incredibly valuable, funny, interesting, ridiculous sometimes, but very valuable because they're really just oral histories of that space and the surrounding space, of course. So, you know, I was a, a young curator at that time, and I was going off to graduate school in Boston. And I just started writing down some of the stories that these uh, folks would tell me. And when I found myself in a museum or a library or research center or something like that, I would sort of carve out some time to also follow up on some of the stories that I had heard just to see just to see if they were fact or fiction, right? Because, you know, 20, 30 years of sitting in that bar is valuable, but it's also, city, it's also 20, 30 years of sitting in that bar drinking. So <laughs> how much of it is fact and how much of it is fiction? So it really got me interested in sort of digging into archives to verify some of these stories or, or sort of add to them if I could. And it really kind of just started that way. And I would say by the early 2000s, by 2001, 2002, I had sort of put together these histories of bars in Chicago and a few in Boston, really from, from the earliest information I could find to the present day to kind of do a whole full circle picture. And I really just kind of shifted gears into looking at those taverns as tools to talk about the history of not just the location, but the neighborhood around it. Because when you start sort of connecting the dots to the different bars, you can certainly start getting the history of a neighborhood. And then you take it a step further and you can start getting the history of a city. And that's really how I, I kind of got into it. And slowly but surely, a lot of that research started to sort of spill over into American brewing history and then world uh, beer history and certainly the histories of various alcohols here and there whenever you're looking at an aspect or a time period of a, of a particular country or particular city uh, because alcohol certainly has played a role for human beings throughout the world throughout time. So a pretty good tool to talk about history. Yes, I, I think so. And I think brewing is actually a little bit more universal than distilling. It really goes back to the beginning. So that's exciting. Right. Yeah, beer is certainly beer is certainly one of those beverages that for me is quite important in that people, no matter who you are, no matter where you grew up, no matter who your parents are, no matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter what you do for a living, you all probably have some sort of personal connection to beer. Mm -hmm. Right, so it kind of transcends a lot of these socioeconomic hierarchies and, and systemic injustices that you know we might see in our world today. So that that beverage has sort of been something for all classes, and that's certainly true in different parts of the world in different um, time periods. So it, it's certainly a, a great liquid to discuss various um, aspects of culture and. Even thinking about it as a way to add calories to a diet and that sort of thing, it just really, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I could just uh, see it as 
so, so very important. And even the idea of being able to like use stale bread and that sort of thing and brew that. So right. just really, I'm, it's just so universal. I, I think it, it touches everything. So I wanted yeah, to ask uh, you. It's fun to talk about for sure. Yeah. How did you forge the relationship with the Field Museum so that your museum could produce this temporary exhibit? Uh, this is a great question, and it's actually a question I get a lot. And to be honest with you, it's a question I get mostly from younger people wanting to get into beer history, if you will, right? And the, my, my simple answer is it did not happen overnight. I have been working in the museum field since I was 15 years old. And my very first job as, a, as an intern in the museum was, interestingly enough, the Field Museum. And I interned there throughout high school and throughout college. And when I graduated from college with an anthropology degree, amazingly, I was one of the few people in, in a few of my classes that actually got a job. And that was at the Field Museum. And that was sort of the beginnings of my museum career. And... You know, and I just kept going forward with doing various exhibition development and curation and a lot of work, certainly in archives, doing a variety of things in graduate school. And so this is sort of a long way of saying that these relationships don't get created overnight. You know, I had definitely had a relationship with the Field Museum for a long time and had gone to other museums and done the work, you know, rolled up my sleeves and, and it was dedicated to it and had done the work. So by the time... You know, I'm at a very different uh, stage in both my life, my personal life and my professional career, and built a museum or the concept for a museum. You know, I went to the Field Museum, and honestly, there are very little people around that I still knew. But I was fortunate enough to meet a woman at the Field Museum who's in charge of their business development. And one of the things that she did that was very smart that I feel like many museums should be doing is creating beers just for, for their institution. And so Megan uh, Williams at the Field Museum had made a variety of different Field Museum beers that you consume on site. So when she heard about the museum and I started chatting with her about it, it was one of those things where she knew exactly what I was trying to do. And we developed a, a relationship and a partnership in you know, the, the museum would go to the Field Museum and host some programs and, you know, also talk about the Field Museum beer. So it was definitely beneficial to both. And as that relationship grew, the conversation for an exhibit started. And eventually we got to that point, which was definitely was not, not the, another overnight situation. So it was a combination, I would say, you know, my 30-plus years in, in museum, working in museums, and certainly a good three years of developing a new relationship with the Field Museum to make it happen. So did you learn anything new about brewing and, and putting this together? Well, the, the, the story, Brewing of Chicago is very much focused on 19th century Chicago history. And that actually happens to be my specialty. So the exhibition is something that I had already been working on in a sense for a solid 10 years. 
I had pitched an exhibition to my former employer, the Chicago History Museum, about doing a beer history exhibit about Chicago. And I pitched it several times, and each and every time, they always said no. I said no because, you know, it's not family-friendly, and no because the schedule was full, or no because nobody would go, nobody would come see it. Right. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think it was just, unfortunately, just the wrong place and the wrong time for it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly that kind of person that whenever I hear no from somebody, I just hear, no, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not for somebody else. So I kept pursuing it in my own. And I actually left the History Museum to start my own consulting business. And at the same time, I actually was contacted by a suburban history museum to do an exhibit and in a sense I had already had it in my back pocket and so I treated what they needed uh, for their institution and their space a very small organization in the western suburbs of Chicago and at that same time I had already actually started to build this concept for the museum so really growing up Chicago was sort of an evolution of all of that and very very focused on certain narratives and when we when we opened the exhibit in November of 2018, the country was already going through some pretty tumultuous times because our president had been attacking immigrants and and other people, and I saw the opportunity for the exhibit to really showcase how immigrants, you know, white immigrants, if you will, like Germans and Irish during 19th century Chicago and the United States overall were very much hated and vilified, right? And, and it's sort of something that had, had been part of our American history. And so for me to tell that immigrant story and how the immigrants actually built the city and how immigrants actually built the brewing industry, that was going to be a very important and very powerful message. And it had, for me had to be the underlying message of the whole exhibit, just because I knew that, again, like beer, people were were going to be able to connect to the story. So that's really sort of the new version of exhibitions that I already had bouncing around in my head for a while. Wow. Well, that sounds like a very powerful message and just lets us know that food and drink are really at the center of everything. And... We yeah. just can't forget that. <laughs> and it's a great vehicle because it's, and it's also a really great story to tell besides. So I'm really interested to know how you have been affected by social isolation and all of that sort of thing. Do you think that you're drinking more? Um, I would say at the start, I did, I think, March for everybody. It was a little bit of a never-ending month and a little bit of so much unknown. It was also new and really didn't know how to navigate. And so being stuck at home, I, I, I did a lot of cooking and a lot of baking. I love cooking. I hate baking, but I needed, you know, again, something new to do. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, watching uh, all the things that you've been planning to watch and reading all the things and all of those different outlets always go well with, uh, you know, a glass of beer or uh, a glass of wine. 
So for sure. But then, you know, come April, I, I definitely shifted back into a little bit of a routine and, and kind of uh, quelled all that a little bit. But for me, you know, I think that this time of quarantine here has allowed me just to do a lot of things that I've been wanting to do that I, I had put off to the side. And, and certainly that's been in my personal life and my professional life as well. You know, with the Brusium, I've been able to tackle some some projects and some initiatives that were sort of off to the side and, and sort of putting those into place. And one thing that we've actually been doing is pretty quickly, I would say the third week of March, we started hosting virtual programming. And that's been really great for us because it's allowed us to do a number of things. The first thing is, is that it's allowed us to engage a lot of fantastic people on our board or supporters and give, have them, you know, use their knowledge to give presentations about, you know, whatever it is they're experts at. And so that's been really good because we always want to engage, you know, people who, who support our efforts. It's also allowed us to engage the community and not just Chicago. So whenever we posted events, you know, with people in the city who come to them. But what we found with a lot of our programming is that people from all over the world have been tuning in. So that's really fantastic in our, in our efforts to definitely not just be a national museum, but to be recognized internationally. Absolutely. And then, um, the, yeah, it's been fantastic. And then the, the third thing has been to, it's sort of been an informal evaluation of what people are interested in mm-hmm. and how they react to certain things. So keeping track of that. And then the last thing is that we've, because all of these, even recording everything, we've allowed ourselves to create this archive of various histories and discussions about beer culture, and we've created a YouTube channel out of it. So for me, you know, from that aspect of it, it's, it's been quite positive. It's been very informative, and I think it will certainly inform what we do in the future. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And so do you feel that you're further along then in actually establishing the Bruseum as an actual place? Do you think that that's still one of your goals? Yes. The goal it will always be to have an actual museum. That is certainly something that we will get to. And I think that we can certainly live digitally for a while. Uh, we've been you know, doing things all over the world, actually, mm-hmm. through the Bruseum, but certainly a permanent place. I will tell you that at the beginning of COVID and even still today, it has been the one time I was happy that we did not have a physical building. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I see so many museums, you know, struggling, you know, struggling because they, they, you know, don't have that, those admission fees and they still got to keep the lights on and they've got staff. And I know that's really difficult right now. So, you know, that's, that's been sort of, I guess, the silver lining for me and not having the building yet. Yeah, and we've been closed now since sometime in March and are trying to become open. We at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. And it's yeah. it's yeah, it's it's definitely a a work in progress in terms of okay, how do we think we can reopen because of the restrictions that are are placed on us and in particular because so many of our exhibits are physically interactive where you can actually pick up gadgets and play with them and all that sort of thing. 
and we've been restricted in terms of how we can open and that's not allowed right now. Yeah. So we're having to rethink the way the museum is even laid out. Yeah. Would you say that you actually have, because of your size, you have a little bit more flexibility, you think, than some of these larger institutions? I do think that being small allows us to kind of turn on a dime without a lot of bureaucracy in place. Yes, I do believe that. I mean, I worry about places like the Smithsonian or something, which are so full of bureaucracy. I know know that, um, yeah, I know a lot of bigger museums here in Chicago have certainly laid off a a good percentage of their staff. And and I think more more are coming. So that's just rather unfortunate when we when you say turn on a dime it reminded me a good co- a good friend and colleague at a different museum a larger museum sent me a note in early april saying how impressed she was that we were able to shift to virtual programming so fast and i replied to her and i said i don't have to ask 17 people for permission <laughs> you know <laughs> she's like oh my god you're so right um <laughs> the bureaucracy of museums. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's fascinating. It is very interesting. You know, some of the larger museums in New Orleans have had some significant layoffs or furloughs or whatever they wind up being, and you almost feel that you're doing somebody a kindness by actually laying them off so that they can get un- unemployment. Um, right. Because... Some, I think the semantics of, of what happens to them is, is really important in being able to get unemployment, even if you have an intention of bringing them back as soon as possible. Right, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yes, we, being so small and having such a small staff has been really a blessing at this time. And also, we're pretty wide open, but of course, most museums are pretty wide open so right now um, we're in what our city is calling phase two, which means that we can operate at half capacity, but mm-hmm. it's not usual for us to be at capacity at you know the whole day. We may we may in the whole day reach that number, but we don't reach it all at one time unless we're having a special event yeah. or something like that where everyone gathers for this particular time. And so being able to open at half capacity is not a really bad hardship for us because sure. I think it's more like well, that's kind of the way we operate it already, so we can do that. So that, that part is good. I'm more worried that people won't come because we don't have very many tourists in the city and tourism is a big part of the economy of the city. So I'm more yeah. worried about that than I am about the mechanics and logistics of actually opening. Sure, sure. Yeah, but, tourism uh, is certainly down everywhere, and I think that's a massive concern for for so many cultural organizations, but, you know, so many businesses in general. Oh, yes. And I, I see that it's going to change the bars all over the country for sure because some, I think, yeah. as they open are going to be packed and some are going to be 
absolutely empty. And yeah. it it saddens me to think that places that are 50, 60, 75 years old might not be able to just hang on because right because of people's fear of being close together and all of that. And the same is true for restaurants. Uh, restaurants right now can only open at 50% capacity. And it's, you know, that's probably just break even. So a lot of them are saying, well, what's the point of opening just to break even? And so they're not opening. And how long can they hold on, you know? And then other restaurants, which have done fairly well with just curbside delivery and that sort of thing, I think are trying to to open up because they already have staff working there for the curbside delivery part. So it's a really interesting thing. I think it's going to be a while before the dust settles, before we can really evaluate what the final result of this is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to see what sort of evaluations come out from a lot of these museums after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's going to make the museums, I mean, I I think, not that this was something that anybody anticipated. Uh, We certainly anticipate disasters in New Orleans, but they're usually in the form of a hurricane. So we do plan for those, but we didn't plan for this and this COVID-19 crisis. And so I think we we were in a fortunate position, but I, I understand where you might not be. So it's tough. Yeah. Crazy times for sure. That is that is the truth. And then you are doing <laughs> consulting. Are you able to continue doing that, museum consulting? You know, there were some projects I kind of had, again, sort of when I could get to them, I would. So I've had a couple of things in that regard. But for the most part, you know, a lot of this, again, is sort of tied to tourism. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. definitely a lot of things on hold just because there's so much so many unknowns i have I, another thing i do is I, I have a lot of speaking engagements around the city and, and the chicago land area and around the country and and those certainly have either been canceled or put on hold or have translated into virtual mm-hmm. so it's, it's definitely not great i'll tell you that yeah yeah Well, Liz, I want to thank you so much for your thoughts and all the work you've done on the Bruseum. I just think it's a wonderful idea, and I'm really, really excited about the prospect of it one day having a really brick-and-mortar home. So thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And And let me say that I am incredibly grateful for you and your work because your efforts with the Southern Food and Beverage Museum preceded mine by at least 10 years. And you were one of the first people I reached out to sort of, you know, pick brains and get some advice and some guidance. And aside from, from actually doing that, I think one thing that people don't realize that a lot of other people don't do is actually respond. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) You not only responded and acknowledged the, 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 the message, but you certainly have been a great um, voice 
and I've certainly lent an ear and we've gone back and forth and I know we've done some stuff in the past together. So I, I just want to say that I'm definitely grateful for your work and, and for you forging a path for uh, these museums that want to focus on, on food and beverage. So thank you. Well, thanks for the kind words. I really do believe that rising tides float all boats and that it only helps all of us if we all succeed. So, um, Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah. So thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.